sent an email to Steve Nodder and he said, Go Chargers. Whose side is caught on? Not, oh, the Niners. All right, we're not going to get into a football argument, but just to eat your heart out, Rob and Linda Dore are visiting relatives in the Green Bay area, and you might know which team lives in Green Bay. And tomorrow night, their friends are taking them to see Green Bay Packers play some other team. I'm not sure which one it is. But anyway, that's, that's a hard life. I really counted a privilege to be able to stand in front of you and share with you from God's Word. And before I do that, I'd like to pray. Father, our focus should be on you and what you want to teach us. And this is far more than money. This is about life. This is about how we steward everything you've given us, whether it's very little or a lot. You are the object of our lives. And I pray that would come through loud and clear as we look into your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there are three principles, at least three, that are foundational to understanding stewardship as a way of life. I had the opportunity to speak here a year or two ago, and that was my topic. Stewardship as a way of life, not as an isolated topic, but it's how you live every day, 24 hours a day. And these are the three principles that I think mean a lot to me. Number one is this book, which is the Bible, is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Something has to be meaningful in life, and this is it. It gives you the truth about Jesus Christ. And he said he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, there are a lot of competing philosophies in the world. People have to decide, what am I going to hook my wagon to? And frankly, this is the wagon that we hook to. It's the Word of God. It's paramount, hopefully, in every decision we make. Secondly... Scripture teaches radical living, not casual Christianity. And the truth is meant to be obeyed. Those are hard words when you live in America. We are a country that is the wealthiest in the world, bar none. We probably spend more money than 75% of the countries in the world that live in poverty. I read a book called Operation World. How many of you have seen Operation World? It lists every country in the world, and it's alphabetical. And I'll tell you, when you go through the countries in Africa and see what those people live on, where country after country, one of the poorest countries in the world, one of the poorest countries in the world, annual income is $354. Many people make that in a day in our country. And so... God calls us to radical living. When you think of what Jesus taught, he said, love your enemies. Is that normal or natural? Hardly. And it says, you invite those to your home that can't invite you back. That's radical. And if you want to have some fun, just take your Bible, and as you read it, 
I read through Scripture regularly. As you read it, write down the radical things that Jesus said or the radical things that you find in the Old Testament. When Jane and I first went with Operation Mobilization back in 1968 and 69, we went to France for a year. Those were the early dates of OM. And there was a book by a fellow named William MacDonald called True Discipleship. And I'll tell you, it was radical. And OM was radical. If you wanted to eat, you had to sell books when you went from door to door in France. Uh, If you wanted to live somewhere, you'd often stay in the church. You had to put yourself in a position of dependence upon God. It's easy when you have credit cards and cash to not depend upon God, right? And we've all been there, and maybe that's where some of us are now. But God calls us to radical living. That's what the world will understand. They will not understand normal living. When you witness to a Muslim and you use the word Christianity, guess what they associate that with? America. And it's not a winning note at all. You talk about Jesus, and it's totally different. Because they don't want to identify with America, the land of lust and immorality and everything else. But when you talk about Jesus, they have an open ear. So radical living, and it's meant to be obeyed. It's not a multiple choice. It's an either or. Third, everything done on earth is preparation for what's ahead of us. I remember I gave out some bookmarks like this when we had a missions conference. And this was developed by Randy Alcorn. And I still have a bunch, and by George, they're still free. It says, life on earth is a dot. Begins. It ends. It's brief. Life in heaven is an unending line that extends forever. So we have to make a choice. Do we live for the dot, or do we live for the line? And when you cast your lot with Jesus, we're called to live for the line and not the dot. So those three principles, I think, are really important. I enjoyed, I can't say I enjoyed, but what Rob taught last week, what Dr. Bob taught three or four weeks ago, what Joe taught two or three weeks ago, and what Bill taught on weekend one, all fits together. It really does. And if you review your bulletins and your notes, you'll see that they're all tied together It focuses ultimately on how we live. Francis Schaeffer was a theologian who lived in Switzerland. And some of us older folks would remember Francis Schaeffer. He wrote a book called How Shall We Then Live? And he was a scholar, he was extremely bright, but he also knew the Word of God from one cover to the other. And he challenged Christians on how they should live. People would come from all over the world to his little hamlet in Switzerland, just to learn what he meant by how we should live. Last week, Rob had three points. And this is uh, the first one, not used to this, but I got my notes, so I'm okay. It says, give regularly and purposefully. Regularly and purposefully. It doesn't say the amount, does it? But you've got to give with a purpose. And the scripture is on the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside and save in keeping with how he prospers you. And verse uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, 
do as he decided in his heart. So, so giving is regular and it has to be with a purpose. You don't just grab your wallet and take a bell out and throw it in and say, that's it. That's not purposeful giving, is it? That's sort of getting off the hook is what it is. And a lot of people just let George do it, right? Where, does, where do you see George in your money system? He's on the $1 bill. And so that satisfies the fact of giving. But you have to decide before God what God intends you to do. Secondly, Rob said, give generously. Generous means that you're not stingy. Now, when I buy a gift for Jane, I want to buy something that is suited to her. Well, I have to know what she likes and what she enjoys. So three or four years ago, I built her an art studio. And it was a big endeavor. I loved doing it. But it was my gift to her, specifically designed for her because she's an artist. And it changed her life in the sense she now had a place to go and make her pottery and do her art and everything else. And God's that way with us. God gives us what we need. And frankly, he's not opposed to enjoyment, folks. He's not a donkey Christian where you go around with a long face. God is the author of joy and excitement. So when you give generously, that's what you'll reap. I don't believe in this prosperity gospel where if you give to God, he'll just keep shoveling it back to you. That's a wrong motive. That's a false motive. And many people have been stripped down to nothing in Latin America and Africa and Asia because they're taught that principle and the one who winds up with all the money is the one who asks for the money. Give generously. And there's two verses for you. We've heard this already. Give trustingly. If God is who he is, and if his word is true, and I believe that's what we agreed to, then you can trust God. And you know what? When you give through the offering plate, a bag or back there, you are trusting the church to manage that money properly. When you release that check or that cash, you're giving it to God. The vehicle may be Yakult Community Church, but if you give it, you give it like this and you pull your hands back. It's gone. You've released that to God. Those who have the responsibility of developing budgets and so on, they're the ones who will answer for the proper use of the money that you and I give. But our our trust is not only in God, it's on the people that manage the funds. I've got a fourth one for you, and that's really a part of the heart of my message, and that is to give sacrificially. Sacrifice is a tough word. It really is. And it's a tough word for the culture we live in. People say, well, I'm going to give up breakfast. Is that a sacrifice when you know lunch is coming? Or if we fast, which is mandated in Scripture, most of us know we're going to get food the next day. Or if we fast for a week, we live in a country where that's not a problem. But what if you're a believer in North Korea and you are in prayer to God and you hardly have anything to eat anyway and you decide that you want to fast. That's sacrifice. That's sacrifice. Because you're going without the minimal things you need to even survive in North Korea. The the dictionary, Oxford Dictionary, said, what is sacrifice? It's an act of giving up something of value 
for the sake of something that is greater value and importance. And I think the supreme example of that is Jesus Christ, where he gave his life on our behalf. And in Isaiah, the writer says, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be what? Satisfied. See, Jesus said to the Father before his crucifixion, Lord, is there, is there a plan B here? Is there any other way? He knew what he was facing when he would bear the sins of the whole world. I mean, the physical suffering was horrible, but it was nothing like bearing your sins and my sins when he died on the cross to redeem us. And then in John's epistles, he said, that's the greatest sacrifice when you lay down your life for a brother. We will probably never face that, but I don't know. Many believers face that all over the world. I'm reading a church history book right now. I'm reading for the second time. I just couldn't get enough the first time. And it traces the thread of the apostolic church all through history where they, where they were rooted in Scripture. And it went through every time when things were horrible. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of men and women who gave their lives for the gospel. And many times they would help people escape one place to get to another one where they may be safer. And they'd hound them down there. And many believers sacrificed their lives for the sake of the gospel. So I want to share with you quickly through Scripture where sacrifice is found, especially in the Old Testament. And I don't think these are on your notes. Genesis 3.20, first time there's sacrifice. When Adam and Eve put on the fig leaves, it wasn't very good clothing. They wouldn't have bought it at Nordstrom's. So what did God do? An animal had to pay with its life, right? There was a sacrifice of an animal so that Adam and Eve could have clothing. That's the first example of sacrifice. It cost the animal its life. Genesis 4.4, Abel offered the firstborn of his flock. It cost the life of that firstborn. That's the second instance of sacrifice. The third one is in Genesis 22. You know, if I miss some, you can correct me later. But if you know Genesis 22, that's the accounting of Abraham when he took his son Isaac. And they went up to the mountain where Abraham was told that he was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it's a picture of Jesus Christ because Isaac was Abraham's only son. Jesus was God's unique son. And as they got closer, Isaac asked his dad a question. He said, there's the fire, there's the wood, but we're missing something. What were they missing? The sacrifice. And Abraham said, God will provide the sacrifice. And I mean, I don't know how you do this other than absolute obedience to God. Abraham bound his son, who probably was a teenager at that point, put him on the altar and raised his knife. Can you imagine Bill doing that to your son? It's just, you know, we have four sons. I can't imagine that. But Abraham, it's not, he loved Isaac, but he was there and God said, stop. <laughs> he says, I just wanted to test you. The interesting thing is God knew that Abraham would pass the test, but it was for Abraham's benefit that God did that. So Abraham would know that God is the provider. One of the names of God we studied when Bill was teaching on that. 
That's, that's the next case. And it pictures the sacrifice of Jesus. In Exodus and Leviticus, probably some of your favorite books to read, not necessarily mine, but you're more spiritual than me, so you'll just love those books. You have sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. You had them with animals, with grain, with meal. It was endless. But what did they all portray? They portrayed the sacrifice of Christ. That was the Mosaic Law, an endless chain of sacrifices. Why? Because we're sinners. We need a sacrifice, but the animals weren't sufficient to cover our sins. They weren't. Then if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 24, Israel was enduring a plague. And, during, and God stopped that plague. David came up to the threshing floor of Aruna. And he told Aruna, I want to buy that floor so I can offer a sacrifice. And Aruna said, oh, it's a privilege of me to give it to you, and so on and so on and so on. And can anyone tell me what David said? Speak up. I will not do what? So, that cost me nothing. David was not, I mean, he could have taken that gift. There's nothing wrong with that. But he said, you know, sacrifice has to have a cost for me. And David was a wealthy king. It wasn't as though he was broke after he made that purchase. But it was the idea of I will buy that floor. It's going to cost me to sacrifice. And that's what he did. Malachi chapter 1, which is the last book in the Old Testament. Things were not good in Israel in the time of Malachi. In fact, they were absolutely horrible. Talks about, the Lord says, If I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is your fear? If I am, uh, uh, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased? I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. That's how the Old Testament ends, with God saying, just close the doors. Everything you do is a waste of time. It's not intended for me. You're going through the motions and you're giving me the least you can with a sick animal or a lame animal. And that was how bad it was in Israel. And then you have the 400 years of silence. Sacrifice is all through Scripture. And how we determine that in our life is really up to us. It's different for everyone here. Sacrifice is very individual. It's very personal. It's not necessarily a group thing. It could be. But it's a personal thing. Will you and I determine before God in how we live? And I'm not talking money here. I'm talking about the whole concept of stewardship as a way of life. And, and Mary expressed that so well, where she didn't have a lot of money, but she had skills and she had resources that she could use to bless other people. That's stewardship. That's looking at your life holistically. Now, I love being a part of this church. And Jane and I have been here two and a half years. I think 
We have a healthy church. We're not perfect. We have families who struggle. We have individuals who struggle. We live in a broken world. And even though we wish we weren't prone to sin, we are. We still walk in a fleshly body. And that's the avenue Satan often uses to attack us. That's a part of life. And so you have Pastor Bill who does counseling. You have the elders who have shepherding group. We are a needy people. It might look great on the outside, but many of us carry hurts in our guts that we need to be addressed. We need God to fix it and to make us whole and healthy. That's a part of stewardship in our church, and I think we do a pretty good job of that. All right, where are we on my... Let's go to the next one. You're probably wondering what the next one is. It's Matthew 6 and 7. There we go. Doing your good works to be seen by Facebook. Woo! I don't use Facebook. Okay. This is, if you take Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what is that commonly called? It's a sermon on the mount. It's Jesus' premier sermon to all the people who came to listen to him. And if you want to look at stewardship as a way of life, that's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So I've chosen that. I didn't do Matthew chapter 5, so you wouldn't kick me out because I'm going to be so late. But your assignment is to do 5. And I think you'll get the idea when we go through 6 and 7. So don't practice your righteousness in front of people. Can you think of an example in the New Testament where people practice their righteousness in front of people? Which one? How about the Pharisees? Yeah, they liked to dump boatloads of money into the offering. And they wanted it to be visible. They wanted people there. Oh, you holy men, look what you're doing. Jesus said, don't do that. Don't practice your righteousness in front of people. Number two, pray privately to your Father who already knows your needs. So don't babble. Don't just sit there and go through your rosary or your holy beads or your things one after the other. God already knows what you want, but he wants you and me to express those needs. You come to your Father and you express your needs because that puts us in a place of dependence. We live in a culture that values independence, right? We're strong on, I can do it on my own. God says, no, that's not my way. My way is dependence, where you trust on me. The whole concept of the church is a body, right? And it says the body is made up of many members. And Paul talks about the heart or the liver or the teeth or whatever. And he said, when all of those members are properly functioning, you've got a healthy body. And that means no one can skip out from that. You have to come before God and consult others in the church saying, what are my spiritual gifts? <clears throat> How do I contribute to the health of Yaakov Community Church? Forgive wrongdoing or you will not receive God's forgiveness. Wow. How's that for a two by four in the side of the head? <laughs> have, have, you, have we all practiced forgiveness every time? No. Sometimes we're quick to forgive but sometimes we say, I'm not going to forgive till they come to me. 
Or they've got to take the first step. That's not what the verse says. It says forgive. And I don't know all the outworking of that second part where you'll not receive God's forgiveness, but it's true or it wouldn't be there. I believe in the forgiveness of sins and Jesus died for our sins. But there's some mechanism that impacts our life when we won't forgive other people. It impairs our walk with God. It really does. Number four, fast so that no one knows you're fasting. See, it talks about people that fasted. They went around and they put dirt on their hair and wore their old clothes. And they wanted you to know, hey, here's my sign. I'm fasting. Can't you tell? And Jesus said, no, that's not my way. You fast so that no one knows you're fasting. Because fasting is between you and God. It's not between you and someone else. It's between you and God. And the purpose of fasting is to say there's something that's more important to me, whether it's eating a meal or going somewhere, it's more important that I take that time and carve it out and my whole attention goes towards God. That's what a real fast is. And it's hard to do in our culture. It's hard for me, believe me. But there is value in fasting. Number five, when it comes to treasure, be heaven-focused. Now, it doesn't mention an amount, but it says when you have treasure, whether it's a car or a bank account or a house or a boat or whatever it is, it needs to be heaven-focused. We have four sons, and Tim, our second son, had a ski boat. And one of the joys of Tim was to use his boat to take youth out on the lake to go water skiing. He couldn't have done that without a boat. (laughs) But that was a part of Tim's joy. And even though he enjoyed the boat with his family, that was a part of his main reason for having a boat. And I've, I've always thought of Tim as using stewardship as a way to bless other teens. And he did it for a long time. So you're heaven focused because how you use your money or your time or your treasure has that concept of I'm living for the line, not for the dot. And you have to define that. You really do. Because we all have different possessions. But I think it's worth it to go before God and say, Lord, this is my basket of resources that you've given me. How do I best use that to further your kingdom? Because that's the only thing that's going to last. We might live for 70, 80, 90 years. Poof, it's a drop in the bucket. Eternity goes on forever and ever and ever. Can't imagine that because nothing in life goes on forever and ever and ever. But that's what heaven is going to be. Wouldn't you rather give so that something worthwhile goes to heaven than just buy, you know, a $99 steak at Michael Jordan's restaurant? I'm not saying that's wrong, but I would have a hard time doing that. I really would. Number five, five, to do this, you must have a clear vision. And I believe a clear vision comes through reading the word and prayer. I don't think there's any other way to get it. And I'd add a third thing. If you don't read missionary biographies or read the lives of incredible men and women who lived for God, you're missing out. And if you don't like to read, there's lots of videos. 
DVDs, YouTubes, on your computer, on Amazon, on Netflix. And Jane and I have watched a whole bunch of missionary biographies on, by that vehicle. It's a great way to learn how men and women live for God. God is the only master you serve. Number six, God knows everything earthly you need to live. So quit worrying. You ever watch a person's face and can you tell if they worry or don't worry? It's kind of fun to be a people watcher. And um, you can tell sometimes if someone is worrying because they're kind of squinted up and so on and so on. I think that's a really sad way to live when you worry about everything. Because frankly, does your worry accomplish anything other than giving you ulcers or other things that aren't good? Worrying helps no one. So we're told not to worry because guess what? God's got it in control. He knows what you need. Don't be judgmental. This is one I've struggled with all my life. I find that it's easy for me to be critical because someone else isn't like me, which is probably a good thing. But it's easy to be critical and to be judgmental. God says, don't do it because you only have limited knowledge about another person. That's why we can't judge. We tend to judge based on externals. Maybe what a person looks like or maybe where they live or what they drive or what they don't drive. God says, you don't have all the facts, so skip judgment. Number eight, keep asking, searching, and knocking because your Father in heaven gives good things to those who ask him. Isn't that interesting? He didn't just say, uh, keep asking. He said, keep searching and knocking. That's a threefold effort on getting to God. In other words, it tells me it's not a quick fix. God is not into quick fixes. He really isn't. Our culture is. And if people wait three minutes at a drive-thru at McDonald's, they get impatient because that's too long. <laughs> We're in for the quick fix. God is in for the long haul. And many times he'll teach us by stretching it out so that we'll learn a lesson that maybe will help us learn it quicker the next time. I had a teacher when I was in Bible school, and he equated emotional and spiritual maturity in this way, and I never forgot it. He said, one of the signs of emotional maturity is that when you make a mistake, you catch it quicker the next time. You catch it more quickly. And so if I'm angry at Jane for a week, that's not good. But if I only stay angry five days, I've made progress. <laughs> or three days. But maturity means you catch it right away. And frankly, you, that's spiritual maturity as well. They go hand in hand. So if you want to be a healthy person before God, learn how to deal with your emotions, how they relate especially to people, and I believe God will use that to draw him closer, draw you closer to him. Nine, make sure you enter the kingdom because many people and things want you to go to hell. How's that for a, a blank stuff? Pretty straightforward statement. But it's true. In scripture it says, narrow is the way that leads where? To an eternal life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And so... The writer says, make sure you find the narrow way. So the, the most important question you can face in your life 
is, have I come to Christ, confessed my sins, and I'm a child of God? Nothing is more important than that. If you can't get to that step, there's not much else that really matters in life. And I believe that's probably true of most of us here, but it may not be true of all of us. And if you're here this morning and you say, you know, I don't know if I've really taken that step, or maybe you're depending upon a church, or the fact that you're the scale type of mentality where your good works outweigh your lousy works, it doesn't count with God. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through the door that Jesus Christ said, I am the door. Make sure you go through the door. <clears throat> there are two foundations, sand and rock. When I was in Sunday school, we had the wise man built his house upon the rock, the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the rains came tumbling down. What do you think the rains did to the sand? Flat. Now, Steve, you're building a building over there at your place. Did you put sand for the foundation? Boy, I hope not. Are we, 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 yeah, it was there. Or we'd call your building credentials in. No, you build on the rock because the rock is firm. It's the foundation. If you're a house builder, you know that everything depends upon the foundation. Good foundation, you got a chance to build a good house. Lousy foundation, you're in trouble. You may not see it for a while, but it ultimately will. And finally, there is really only one authority, and that is God. No one stands up to the authority of God. So be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow. God is your authority. I want to close by... Have I exhausted my notes, James? Good. I want to close by telling you a small story that deals with sacrifice. And I... Most of you know I work in the field of financial development, like we're doing for the capital campaign. I've read a lot of books. I've watched a lot of consultants that are far better than I am. And one of the elements of an RSI program is to help people understand sacrifice as it relates to what they give for a capital campaign. And I'll tell you, I've seen with my own eyes some of them, but many more from fellow consultants who write them down. I've seen examples of sacrifice where the money is minute, like the two mites. And I've seen sacrificial gifts of a million dollars or more. It's not the amount that counts. Did you hear me? It's not the amount that counts. God will lead you to the right amount. I believe that with all my heart. No one here is going to pressure you on what to give, least of all me. That's between you and God. That's one of the most private and personal things there is is how you use the money and the time and the talents that God entrusts to you. Anne was saved at Calvary Lutheran Church in Lexington, Kentucky at the age of 12. She was in a group of almost 20 teens who lived for Christ. Nine of them went into full-time Christian ministry when they finished high school. She loved her church and the people that had played a major part in her life. As a senior in high school, she committed her life to foreign missions. She met and married a like-minded person at the end of her junior year in college. Seminary came after college, and then they had an assignment from the mission board to go to Chile. They had five hard years there, 
starting in Santiago and became, and they were being moved every year in the other four years. And every year it got more rural, more mountainous, no conveniences whatsoever. And it just was a great challenge to be on the mission field. And they knew they had a furlough coming up after five years. They'd come back home for a year, rest and do deputation work and all that kind of stuff. They were tired and worn out. No convenience, life was hard. On the airplane, flying back home, Bob looked at his wife and she was 28. She said she looked more like 42. She was just absolutely worn out. They had two children by this time. Before they left Chile, the mission superintendent asked Bob to come back and be president of the mission college. They would have a home and stay put in Santiago. Over the Gulf of Mexico, Anne told her husband she just wanted one thing when they returned. She wanted a dishwasher. A dishwasher. Very spiritual thing, isn't it? Dishwasher. Their church had just began a capital campaign like we're doing. And they were invited to participate financially. Now, they're missionaries. But they made a commitment of $25 a month for three years. Now, the interesting thing is, they were going to be back on the field for the last two and a half years of the campaign. Said making 25 a month while they were home in Kentucky probably was doable. But they weren't sure about the last two and a half years. But they loved their church. It was an act of faith on their part to commit 25 bucks a month. It was a family decision. And she shared this testimony at the invitation of the pastor with the congregation, which numbered about 1,100 people. As she was about ready to go down from the pulpit, she paused. And the pastor looked at her and said, do you have something else to see? She said, Pastor, I do. And this is what she shared. She said, last night I was preparing for this morning. I was faced with the fact that sacrifice is never collective. At some point, it is to be sacrificed. It must be intensely personal. Our $25 a month commitment is a family commitment. Somehow, I personally needed to do something for me. When I came home this year, I had a personal goal. I wanted to buy a dishwasher and take it back to the mission field with us. For the first time in six years, our family would have a home that is somewhat permanent. I know it sounds trivial, but it's something that I have planned and wanted for a long time. I hoped for a dishwasher. So I saved the $600 it would take to buy one and have it shipped to Chile and have it installed. I made arrangements to do all this, but last night, as I was talking to the Lord, I decided the dishwasher would be my personal sacrifice. Over and above our family commitment, I'm giving the $600 that I had saved for the dishwasher. Then there was absolute silence in the congregation. And in the silence, she continued. Now I have one other thing to say to you good people here at Calvary. You are such giving people that I know what is going to happen. After the service, someone was going to come up to me and tell me not to worry about it that you were going to give me a dishwasher to take home to Chile. Right? Hear me now, she said. 
please don't do that. Please don't take away my sacrifice. For the next five years, I want to stand at my sink in our home in Chile and wash my dishes and thank God for the people and the ministry of this church. Please don't take my sacrifice away. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that's amazing. It's not the 600 bucks. It's the fact that every day she did the dishes, she would have a reminder that she had made an investment in their church to put a new educational wing so that they could reach kids. Next week is our commitment weekend. And obviously we'd, we'd like everybody to participate. And I hope you do. But what you do is entirely up to you. We have opportunities for financial giving. We have a table back there for gifts and kind. As we move through the building process, there'll be all kinds of opportunities to do the grunt work that many of us feel we can do, but we may not have the skills to be an electrician or a cement worker or a plumber. But we all can participate in some way. You know that we have a goal of a million dollars, which is not enough to even do phase one. We need a miracle from God. And that miracle will come from you and me if we simply say, Lord, what do you want to do through me for the good of Yakult Community Church so that we can expand our ministries? We can have people in heaven that we meet who say, oh, I got saved because I went to that kids program or the youth program or sitting in one of these seats, I found the Lord. Can you put a dollar value on that? Oh, we know we can't. But that's what God is calling us to do. And I pray that you and I will, before the Lord, ask him what he wants us to do. There is an advanced gathering tomorrow night at 6 o'clock here at church with child care. We have one family signed up. If you would like to come to that, let Tom Wilson know, and he will make sure you're on the list. But it's an opportunity to learn more about the campaign. If you have any questions or comments, I'd be happy to talk to you. Bob and Kathy Vogel are our campaign chairs, and a number of others have served on our leadership. But I trust and pray that what you do will give you great joy, because guess what? The giving is filled with joy. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me? <clears throat> Lord, we know that you love us. That's from Genesis to Revelation. Sometimes we need to draw close to you to experience that. And it's funny that that can happen in a capital campaign. As we lay our souls bare and say, Lord, what do you want to do through me? Pray that no one here would feel guilt or compulsion or that all we do is talk about money. We know that that simply is necessary to put buildings up. It's only a tool to accomplish your will. Pray that when we come together next weekend, it'll be a great time. And then on November 10th, we will celebrate what you have done to help us reach our goal of reaching those who are near to us but far from God. We thank you for the salvation we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.